Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. Hey, Amber, I have a joke for you. Okay, tell me the joke. How do you make a handkerchief dance? You put a little boogie in it. (laughs) (laughs) It's relevant because today we're talking about the boogeyman, or more correctly, boogie people. The ones who haunt our dark corners and go bump in the night. Yep. I, again, this, this, so this month's episodes make me feel like this entire show. I think this might be my show, favorite. <laughs> well, I feel like this entire podcast is just like a front for me to talk about the creepy things I love. I will, <laughs> we will be talking about other things, but like, I think this episode so far was my favorite to research. Oh, I thought you meant like that we've recorded so far and it's like, oh, you did was tell a bad joke. <laughs> I mean, top five for sure. Yeah, I think that um, this one and Cloud Holland have been my favorites. All right, well, let's get into it. Okay, great. All right, well, I'm going to go first because I'm the one who has a favorite. Um, and like, I'm not sure if it's possible to even have a favorite boogeyman, but if it were, mine would definitely be Lamash too. You know her? No, but she sounds great. Yes. She's quite terrible. She fears. Um, I first met her. (laughs) Yes. Um, I first met her back in undergrad. Uh, she was carved onto an amulet from a site in what's now the United Arab Emirates. And for me, it was love at first sight. Lamash name literally means she who erases. And um, she did just that. And she was a truly terrifying Mesopotamian demon, partly because her primary targets were unborn children and babies, partly because she'd take out other people that got in her way, and partly because her work was divinely sanctioned. So the, the gods created her lest human population spiral out of control, and also because they couldn't sleep with all that racket on earth. This is telling me a lot about you. And also, now I just have this mental picture of Mesopotamian gods as just, like, permanently harassed parents with headaches. Well, and actually, the language used in, um, like, the language used around describing the racket on Earth that the gods were trying to quiet, um, is it parallels language that's used in incantations and, like, lullabies for <laughs> Mesopotamian babies. Quiet down, so, go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's one that that's like, uh, why are you crying? Why didn't you? Why did you not cry like this when you were in the womb? <laughs> and it's just like, oh god. <laughs> not only is her work like terrifying and gruesome, but it's also divine. So there's like a sort of she has a very specific role to play in the pantheon, um, and the gods had specific instructions for her. So specific that it's. That they set in the Atrahasis, so in the the story of the the flood myth, mm-hmm. at the end when they're when they're kind of setting up the terms of of humankind after the flood, the the instructions for her were let her snatch the baby from the lap who bore it, which is yikes, which is yeah, which is really frightening. Um, and so her partner in this work, the molder to her scully, if you will, was Namtar, who was a plague demon. They were created to just keep everything in check, to make sure that we didn't have too many people. And we know about Lamashtu largely through the objects people use to keep her away from themselves and from their families. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So archaeologists have recovered 
many, many amulets and plaques bearing images of Lamashtu. Um, and the plaques would be used in a specific ritual mm-hmm. to sort of trap her, like for a time being. So you, you kind of catch her inside the plaque. And then after following a certain number of days and performing a certain number of rituals, you would sort of destroy it and you would destroy her with it. And so it was it was part of a, a ritual. And we also have descriptions of her in the texts. And so we have a sense of what she looked and acted like in the mythology. Okay. And so here is one description of her that I <laughs> I patched together through my... So there was a an Acadian version and a French version. <laughs> and I had to use the two together to translate it. And I was like, oh, I don't know which one I'm worse at. This is... This is a description of her. She is ferocious. She mm-hmm. is furious. She is a goddess. She is dazzling. She is a wolf. She is the daughter of Anum. Elle est furieuse. Yes. Yes. Because French. Yes. Yep. Um, That's my so, contribution. <laughs> Keep going. Thanks. Um, yeah. So like the descriptors are very, are sort of kind of, kind of positive almost. Um, fierce. Has, like, yeah. Like empowering. Yeah, she's she is awesome in the original sense of the word. Inspiring um, and awe. Yes, got it. Yeah. And so Anu Anu is the the sky god. And so he's okay. sort of the analog to Zeus. So he's sort of like both the king and the parent. Okay. Of sure. The majority of the pantheon. So she's right. so she's not so much a demon as we understand it as she is like a minor deity. Okay. Um and so her physical attributes included a hairy anthropomorphic body, um, the, the head of a lioness, sometimes donkey ears and talons instead of feet. So she, they said that she had feet like the Anzu bird. And so kind of like eagle talons. Most of these share very specific features. And so you'll have, you'll sometimes see, on, especially on the amulets, which aren't that big, and weren't created by specialists. They were very DIY. Um, But these very DIY depictions would have um, always had some of the same traits. And so that would be Lamashtu in the center with her arms bent at the elbows, her forearms pointing upwards, and her legs slightly apart. And on both her feet and her hands were like, there aren't really hands. There's just talons. And so I'm, I'm, I'm posing like her right now. I wish I could see it. I know. I wish you could too. Um, so the nails are key, as you'll see in a minute. Like the big thing is the nails. Mm. Um, these inscriptions and these prayers, would, these incantations and these prayers would both serve to kind of placate her. Like you saw, like talking about like, oh my God, you're amazing. Like I can't even, but get out. Um, <laughs> and so they would invoke another figure like her opponent, sort of her religious, um, sort of her opponent within the pantheon, Pazuzu. And people might be familiar with Pazuzu. Yeah, why do we know that name? know him. Well, so Pazuzu was an, another demon, at, like in the very Mesopotamian sense. And so he was the, the, the demon of the southwest wind. And so he would bring famine during dry seasons and locusts during rainy seasons. So Lamashtu was trying to get in on his territory and so that was sort of the source of their beef. So it's mm-hmm. like evil v evil and sharks and out. jets. Yeah, prayers against Lamash too would invoke Pazuzu, and he'd duke it out with her. So yeah, but like everybody knows Pazuzu. Pazuzu is the demon who possessed uh, Regan McNeil in the novel and the film The Exorcist. Yeah, and supposedly, if you say 
his name three times. You invoke him. So good job. Yeah. But also he's not a demon. <laughs> he's, he's just a minor deity. So. So you've invoked him and then insulted him. No, no. Joke's on you, author of The Exorcist. Invoking Pazuzu aside, how do you deal with the afflictions that she causes? Because she's out there snatching babies. Something that's important to remember about medicine in ancient Mesopotamia is that unlike modern medicine, where we have an understanding of germ theory and pathology, or medical traditions informed by classical and medieval Islamic views, where you have like humors and imbalances within your body, Sickness in Mesopotamia is inextricably entwined with magic and the spiritual world. Many diseases were considered to be caused by the grip of a demon, which in Akkadian is the tzibtu. Okay. You often find very symptom-based treatments where they're like helping with the with the symptoms of the problem, but also cause-based remedies, which and that's the you know the cause is a demon, and so you want to pray to and placate the God that's causing this. And so from a ancient Babylonian or Assyrian perspective, that's like really rational because it's, because it's, it's both like somatic, it's both based in your body, but also spiritual. So I just did some Googling. Uh Uh-huh. We can, we can insert brief Google theme here. The grip, the idea of being gripped by a demon, I, I all of a sudden wondered if la grippe in French, which was often used to describe sort of uh, fluish symptoms, yeah. um, I wondered if that had its roots in, in the idea of being gripped by a demon. Mm-hmm. And so I, I looked it up and yes, it was used to describe uh, flu and other sort of other maladies, but also it's the literal French translation for seizure. Seizure, being seized. By a demon. Oh, good. That's awesome. That's yeah. interesting. There are, at minimum, <laughs> 13 incantations and nine ritual prescriptions against Lamash too. Can I and go to a Walgreens and get a ritual prescription? No, you have to go to the Library of Ashurbanipal, mm. um, which is, well, now it's in the British Museum, but it was at Nineveh. Okay. And these are intended to, to quote, remove the gruesome demon and the illness she caused from the body of the child, or in the case of an unborn fetus, from the pregnant mother over whom the incantation was recited. And some think that maybe um, the, the amulets were worn, so that, like worn around the neck so that they would sort of suspend over the, the pregnant tummy. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of protects because it would be an image of Pazuzu is usually what it would be. Oh, sure. That's um, logical. In, in those cases. Yeah. So if, if Lamashtu is coming for you, she gets there and she's like, oh, no, I, I don't, I don't have any problem here. And like back nope. away slowly because um, <laughs> Pazuzu's looking out for you. But there are no he- healing rituals for Lamashtu attacks known, only preventative measures and tools for warding her off in the moment. So it stands to reason that once she gets you, there's no escape. And so she's culpable for a whole host of causes of infant and maternal mortality. Um, But in some cases, there is actual proof that Lamashtu has laid claim to someone's child. Not that she is real, but there is a real effect. This is what we call an, an etiology. And so you have 
etiological myths that are myths that explain why something is the way it is. There are etiological aspects to Lamash too that explain why um, a a newborn or a, an infant might get sick suddenly and sort of violently and then pass away. And so we have um, an old Babylonian text. So the old Babylonian period is about 1900 to 1600 BCE. And um, that the old Babylonian period is where um, Hammurabi ruled. Ah, uh, yes. So, so that's sort of key of the code. Yes, of the eponymous code. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this would have been written uh, more than a thousand years before those prescriptions that they found at the Library of Ashurbanipal. Okay. Um, so different place, much earlier, but okay. same sort of cultural milieu. And so there's um, so this text is it was uh, translated in 1954 into English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is small of hand, but long of fingers. Her nails are long and they're peace lost, befouled. She has entered through the house door, slipping past the door pivot. She has slipped past the door pivot to kill the child. Seven times on his belly, she has struck him. I hate small of hand, but long of fingers. Isn't that much. terrifying? I hate and it. And then you see like and you see in the the amulets that she's just like it looks like she's doing jazz hands, but like But not fun. But no, they aren't fun at all. And so the text goes on to have a command to the demon to withdraw her fingernails from the child. Get your fingernails so, out of my baby. So it's this idea that she she kind of will get her claws in you and the 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 language of snatching away. So she snatches them away. So in the late sixties, an Assyriologist decided to look at the medical literature of Iraq, of like contemporary Iraq, to see if there's anything there that might line up with descriptions that we see in the cuneiform evidence. This happens every so often where people who do cuneiform research will like realize that we have medicine like as a discipline and they'll be like, Oh wait. And so it's, it's, it's pretty it's cool. All connected. When, yeah. It's pretty cool when they actually like hook up with physicians and like epidemiologists and stuff to, to look at that research, mm-hmm. but it doesn't happen as often as you would hope. <laughs> Tell me about this one time that it did happen. So this, this is a, this is really interesting. So you've got this, this description of seven times on his belly. She has struck him. And that she's just sort of like stuck her, her nails in him. Like, Ugh. what's that? What, like, what is, like, that doesn't sound like anything very specific, but she's pressing her nails into the abdomen of the child, the emu of the child. That could look like the rash associated with typhoid. So okay. one of the key um, diagnostic criteria for, for typhoid especially in people that can't describe their other symptoms, so babies, is a high fever and a sparse rash of rose spots. And so pink, pink circles. Yeah. So they're flat and they're two to three millimeters in diameter. And the textbook number for such initial lesions is six to 10. Interesting. And it shows up on your tummy and your tummy swells. So like typhus comes with a swelling of the abdomen and a high fever and, and a lot these of little groupings and a, of spots. Yeah, and that's really it for things that you see from the outside. So if somebody can't describe and articulate their symptoms, 
all you know is that they're getting hot, their tummy is swelling, and there's six to 10 rose spots. And so the number of seven could be the seven times that she struck the child on its belly. Yeah, that's a really cool connection. I mean, it's not for certain, but but that's really neat. And so it is it's also um not only interesting just from a connecting like etiologies to things, but it's also interesting in thinking about how to kind of process and rationalize something like infant mortality. Part of a divine edict to Yeah, like this is part of part of like how the universe works. That like it's you have this reason for why it happens. Yeah, I can see that. And and so it's I it's sort of it's sort of like a small comfort. Well, (laughs) that mm, again, it says a lot about you. Okay, we are going to take a brief spin around the world and take a look at boogie people, boogie folk from some different cultures. I thought it would be neat to have a little sampler. The theme here, sort of, is ways to get your children to behave by telling them about the terrifying creatures that are going to come get them. This uh, set of 15 boogie people is from listverse.com, and it's not ranked in any way. Um, There's no (laughs) criteria, but it is listed from 15 to 1. So I'm going to follow that order. I don't think it is ending with the the most boogiest. You know, we'll let the listeners decide for themselves. Okay, so first up is Japan, where the Namahage visits each house on New Year's to ask if any misbehaving children live there. If the parents are able to report that their children are not lazy and do not cry, he moves on to the next house. In Korea, there is a boogeyman called Kotgam, which is the word for persimmon. And so the legend accompanying this is that a mother told her crying child that she would feed him to a tiger if he did not behave. And coincidentally, there happened to be a tiger strolling by the house, and he heard the threat and went, oh, dinner. And so he waited outside the door for his meal. Instead, the mother relented and gave the child a persimmon, a coat gum, and the baby's crying stopped. And so the tiger thought, oh, whatever Kotgam is, it must be fierce and frightening to to calm a baby right away, much more frightening than a tiger. And so the tiger went away. And today... So it's a a boogie tiger? It's not... Well, no, because it's... It's like it's to scare the tiger. (laughs) It did in this story, but then now it has morphed into this other creature. (laughs) And so now it's most often visualized as an old man with a mesh sack who carries naughty children away. So somehow it went from like scaring away tigers to actually being a child stealer. So it's not just a story that tiger moms tell their tiger babies. I mean, I think it is. I hope it is. (laughs) The persimmon's going to get you. Scare the stripes right off of you. (laughs) The the boogeyman from Spain and also Mexico is also super creepy. It's El Coco, the coconut man. And um, I'm going to read a little bit in Spanish, which was just the first line of this list verse heading. Duermete, niño, duermete ya, que viene el coco y te comerá which is, go to sleep, child. Go to sleep now. The coconut man will come and eat you. That's what you say to your baby to get him to go to sleep at night. If you think of a coconut as a head with three little holes in it, it's got those three holes 
Yeah. Uh, and that you could see that as eyes and a mouth or eyes and a nose. I so, do. yeah, it, it, you can see it as being a little hairy man. But um, also during the 16th and 17th centuries in Spain, there were orphan collectors who took children away in sacks. Um, it doesn't say if these were real or if these were threats oh, that the like, orphan collector is going to come get you. Like the Pied Piper. Yeah, it's like the Pied Piper or the um, the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Well, I was thinking of something based in reality. The documentary Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so so El Coco uh, comes and takes children away. And I guess he has a coconut head. In Finland, we have the saddest boogie person, which is spelled G-R-O-K-E. I am not sure how it's pronounced, but I'm going to say Groke. One of the most unusual of the world's boogie things is a giant blue blob who is so lonely and sad that the ground beneath her feet freezes as she walks. She's not malevolent, she's just lonely, but she frightens people, and then they run away. Gosh. That's it. <laughs> Dang, Finland. Your so boogie sad. person is just like the reality of crushing depression. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Yeah, sure. I'm way more scared of that than El Coco. El Coco. Yeah. Yeah. So in England, we have the actual boogeyman. So the the thing called the boogeyman, and it takes lots of different shapes. And there are many theories about the origin of the word boogeyman. One is that it evolved from buggy man, the driver of the cart picking up corpses during the Black Plague. Um, so that you can see why you would be scared of that man. And then in the U.S., we, we also use boogeyman, and it's it's not very clearly defined, but typically it's somebody misty and gaunt and tall and kind of scratches at windows, does creepy things like that. In Scotland, uh, people who enjoy Harry Potter might recognize this. You have the Boggart, who is a malicious fairy who causes personal calamities, small or large, and it sometimes commits the heinous crime of putting a cold hand on people's faces at night. Also, it's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> you must not name it or it will become unreasonable and follow your family wherever you go. Well, so it's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> you named her. She's unreasonable. <laughs> she is. <laughs> uh, well, the good news is you can protect yourself from bogarts by putting a horseshoe over your doorway. In the Bahamas... You've got the small man. He has a rolling cart and he captures children who are out after sundown. If he gets you, you become a small person yourself and ride in his cart forever. Jeez. Yep. They don't mess around in the Bahamas. <laughs> I guess not. Gets dark. Go home. <laughs> okay. Bulgaria. This is the evil partner of the, the Russian boogie lady Baba Yaga. She is a witch who lives in a, a, a walking house on chicken feet. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about her evil Bulgarian partner, Torbalan. And he basically just sort of lurks in the shadows to snatch misbehaving children and carry them away in a sack. There's a lot of yep. sack carrying of misbehaving children. Yep, yep. Bag up them kids. From the Czech Republic and Poland, Bubak is a scarecrow-like man who hides on riverbanks making sounds like a lost baby to lure adults as well as children. He drives a cart driven by cats. Um, it says driven by cats. I don't know if that means that it's a horse cart and the cat is a driver or it's pulled by cats. I'm going to go with pulled by cats. And he weaves clothing for the souls he has stolen. <laughs> and as 
I know. <laughs> that is so scary. But also, we, as I was as I was typing this, a baby outside my apartment started crying, and I was like, "No, <laughs> I won't go looking for it." Okay, from the Netherlands, we have the Bolman. He has claws and fangs, and he hides under your bed or in your closet, waiting to grab you and put you in the basement if you don't sleep. Which, like, and you just sleep in the basement. What if you have a finished basement? You're like, thanks, dude. I like yeah. this couch. <laughs> from the Philippines, we have Pugot Mamu. Uh, it's a gigantic, headless shapeshifter who lives in trees and deserted houses. Brace yourself. Self-beheaded, he eats children through the hole in his neck. Why, yep. ooh, why, does, yep. why don't he just shapeshift himself a new head? That's a question of physics that I'm not prepared to <laughs> deal with. Uh, let's go to Quebec, where we have the Bonhomme Setter, which is translates as the seven o'clock man. Actually, really the seven o'clock gentleman, which I, I prefer. Oh, yeah. well, the seven o'clock gentleman. Mm. Uh, which may have been taken from the English bone setter, which, ooh, that's really crowbarred in there. <laughs> which, uh, it's an old name for a traveling medicine man. Like, you know, if you had a broken arm, this guy would, would set it and put a cast on it. But like, Forget it turning that into bone setter bonhomme setter like i see the the sound yeah but mm, mm, who knows anyway um the seven o'clock man steals children but he can only get you if you're awake sounds like um he's bizarro um, freddy krueger krueger is he the one he wears a mask or no no he's the one that's terribly burned and has oh and he has a bad hat Right? He's like wearing like a weird fedora. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if he was wearing the fedora. You know what? Never mind. Uh, Norway. <laughs> I was ready to answer it. <laughs> Go on. Yep. In Norway, short and sweet, the Nakken, a lake monster, will get you if you don't come in when called. So. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. Get, get in that house. From Trinidad and Tobago, we have the Jumbies post-death misbehaviors. I don't know what that means. Um, they are shapeshifters, so children are taught not to play with random animals. There are several ways to defeat jumbies, however. You can leave your shoes outside, because jumbies have no feet and will spend the night trying to get the shoes on. You can leave a container of sand or rice outside the door. Jumbies will have to count each grain. You can cross a river, because the jumbies won't cross water. It probably has to do with having no feet. Right? Like, you just fall I mean, right over. Fish don't have feet. I don't think jumbies are aquatic. Totally different skill. Anyway, you can leave a rope with many knots. The jumbies, who seem to display some obsessive tendencies, will have to untie each one. Finally, number one, I, I guess this is what List first decided was the boogiest boogie. Uh, Italy has Luomo Nero, a tall man with an unseen face, a heavy coat, and a black hat. He hides under the table and then parents knock on the table to warn their children that Luomo Nero is present and will take them away if they don't eat their dinner. No, mama, I don't want my pasta. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. You know, banging on the table and telling your kid to eat their dinner is um, pretty in keeping with my experience of having Italian parent. <laughs> oh, is your dad a boogeyman? Or or he, he knows of them. Interesting. He knows a guy. He knows me. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Well, those are <laughs> mostly fun. I mean, they're not completely malevolent. I would like to hear about something malevolent. Oh, this is my my next one is quite malevolent. Great. Um, and Great. there's a there was a there's a twist at the end that was a surprise even to me. Uh, as I wrote it. No, oh, well, I look forward to hearing about it. <laughs> so, uh, my second one is the Wendigo. Not to be confused with the Winnebago. Correct. So the Wendigo um, is a malevolent, cannibalistic, one, uh, well, a non-native person might call supernatural being. And so... Checking off three for three on my list. I know, right? Uh, So the name Wendigo entered English from the Ojibwe language. But the being itself is found in the folklore of many Algonquin-speaking indigenous groups. And so the Algonquin family of languages is the largest one in America, in the Americas. And so Algonquin-speaking indigenous groups were originally and still are all over northeastern North America and what is now central Canada. Okay. Um, And so it's, it's understood to be strongly associated with the winter, the north, coldness, famine, and starvation. These Um, are a few of my favorite things. Yeah. So um, the Ojibwe teacher and writer, Basil Johnston, described it as, quote, this is a quote now, um, the Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from suppurations of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and comp- decomposition of death and corruption. And Ew. Yeah, end quote. So depending on who you talk to, the Wendigo can be just a malevolent spirit that just exists in the wilderness and can attack or possess you, or the Wendigo is sort of the end result of a human transforming themselves, transforming themselves into one. Oh, transforming themselves. So it has to do with something you do. Yeah. Yeah. So either um, the Wendigo possesses you and makes you do these things, or you do these things and in doing so, you become a Wendigo. You you Wendigo, and then you are Wendigon. Oof. <laughs> yes. Um, so it so it's historically well, it's historically associated with murder, insatiable greed, and cultural tap breaking some kind of cultural taboo. Um, and so, if you commit some like heinous act, you murder. Um, murder, especially, um, like next of kin murder. Oh, okay. Or, um, or if you eat someone like out of like sort of famine, like emergency mm-hmm. cannibalism, as we, as we talked about, yep. um, usually if you break some social taboo, like a major social taboo, it's not like, Oh, putting your feet up on the table at the dinner table. Like that's not going to turn you into a Wendigo, but like <laughs> doing something. Some households. <laughs> Oof. So it's this this idea of it ha- it has this insatiable hunger, and it whatever it consumes it grows by that amount, so it's never full. 
and it's always starving. And so they end up being sort of huge and monstrous, but starving and emaciated. And it's a really terrifying concept. It is. Um, it plays on oh, if but it's an it's an enemy, but also just sort of the innate human fear of going hungry. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of the the fear. It's sort of the fear of doing something evil or becoming evil, and of being hungry and of never never being satisfied in any way. So the the Wendigo pops up in all kinds of contemporary horror and supernatural fiction. So when I mentioned it, I'm sure not a small number of our listeners were like, "Oh yeah, like an X uh, product," um, but those often aren't accurate to indigenous tradition, which goes, is unsurprising probably. Um, so rather it's appropriated and one might argue misrepresented. And so the first place that it showed up in uh, sort of popular fiction was in Algernon Blackwood's 1910 short story, The Wendigo. That work inspired many a fictional Wendigo, including um, people who like Stephen King may know Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. I do not, but and, I believe you. <laughs> I do not, and I do not. Um, but it is there. It's in that. These representations seem to miss sort of the point of the Wendigo, but keep all of like the scary bits. And so there is a lot of conversation around the Wendigo and whether one can become a Wendigo in like academic spheres. It's discussed. Um, this guy Brightman wrote. In, 80, in 1988, released a paper on the subject of the subarctic Algonquin Wendigo complex. Um, and so in reconsidering documentary evidence, it says that it's probably something that predated the arrival of, of Westerners that like, were writing down these documentary accounts, um, and that a correlative psychiatric disorder entailing cannibalistic ideation and behavior is historically demonstrable, and that an existing ecological explanation of the complex failed to elucidate its origin, persistence, characteristics, and distribution. So in, in the late 80s, well, around like in the seventies and eighties, there there emerged this idea of the Wendigo psychosis that it is probably something that is described as a culture bound syndrome. Uh, um, oh, mm. And we'll talk we'll talk about these in a future episode. But this idea of something that you something that exists only in a specific population, and so there mm. it there are somatic symptoms, but there also are. Um, psychological symptoms and the two and so anthropologists are all about the psychological symptoms and physicians are all about the um, sort of physical somatic symptoms so there's this idea that there perhaps there is a wendigo psychosis Um, and so this author looks through a variety of um, historic documentary instances of Wendigo psychosis and the earliest references um, come from Quebec from some missionary types in the mid 17th century. Mm-hmm. And so the first case was over the winter of 1634, 1635. And it involved an anorexic individual suspected by his relatives of cannibalistic designs toward them. Yikes. Yeah, and so the second one in 1660-61, this is also in the winter, there's just rumors that some emissaries at Lac Saint-Jean 
developed a cannibalistic mania and had therefore to be executed. That sounds Uh, like someone telling stories. Yeah, yeah. And so in 1772, there was a person who had previously practiced famine cannibalism who was executed by his family because after confinement proved ineffective. And so you have... That's really sad. Yeah, yeah. And so... um, in 1775, so it keeps going with these these stories, the person taking records described the, the belief that famine cannibals developed a derivative cannibalistic obsession. And this is clearly a reference to what are elsewhere explicitly described as beliefs in Wendigo transformation. So this idea of if if so if you are trapped, like if you're snowbound and you're starving and you eat the person you're with, you have broken a few social taboos in doing that and also done like a really traumatic thing. And so there's this idea that you will become, that you get the hunger, but there, there's sort of this um, nebula of traits of, of symptoms that one could have in Wendigo psychosis or like Wendigo syndrome. It, in a couple cases, it's seen prior famine or famine cannibalism. Um, very common is the self-definition of a Wendigo saying, I'm possessed by a Wendigo. Threats to kill or eat others. The presence of conventional food. Okay. Uh, the perception I mean. of internal freezing. Requests for execution um, or you know, pleading for death. Um, some kind of possession or vision anorexia, and then um, symptoms associated typically with bipolar disorder. Um, and so these oh, are the, okay. the sources from these these early historical references. And so from them, scholars put forward that, you know, perhaps this combination of psychiatric and somatic symptoms um, are, uh, they do constitute a culture-bound syndrome. But it's very controversial, and it is not included in the DSM. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses and Disorders, and with good reason. And so Cash Ahenaku um, wrote in The Birth of the Wendigo, The Construction of Aboriginal Health in Biomedical and Traditional Indigenous Models of Medicine. Um, the, the author wrote about sort of the intersection of indigenous models of, of health and, and well-being with traditional Western medical approaches and how one often kind of steamrolls the other. And in this piece, um, the author quotes Waldrum, in, who in 2004 um, shows that many Western me- medical measurements were constructed and refined through experiment and research on Aboriginal populations. Through time, folk legend, medical profile, and academic writing merged into an in- image of a, quote, traumatized Aboriginal, end quote, that was used to both justify neocolonial intervention and the perceived threat of Aboriginal identity, which is what Waldrum is capturing in the medical construction of the Wendigo psychosis. You know, the, the Wendigo is a cannibal monster who roams the Northern forest, preying on unsuspecting passersby. And then under the right circumstances, you can transform into one yourself and feast on your relatives. Um, and then 
early historical and ethnographic reports of Wendigo lead to another kind of transformation, the transformation of this folk belief into a bona fide mental disorder, Wendigo psychosis, considered by many to be a cultural bound syndrome. But no actual cases of Wendigo psychosis have ever been studied. So there's only evidence of it through these stories. And so it continues to seek revenge for this attempted scholarly execution by periodically duping unsuspecting passers-by, like psychiatrists, into believing that Wendigo psychosis exists. Wait, so Wendigo psychosis is a Wendigo? Yeah. <laughs> ah! And and so um, and so Waldrum argues that Wendigo psychosis may well be the most perfect example of the construction of an aboriginal mental disorder by the scholarly professions, and its persistence dramatically underscores how constructions of the aboriginal by the professions have, like Frankenstein's monster, taken on a life of their own. So learning about the Wendigo psychosis was a real roller coaster for me. Um, My goodness. And, and so that observation is a really perfect segue into the other very well, real Wendigo uh, being the metaphorical one. So the Wendigo has evolved in indigenous ideology to include this metaphorical dimension connected to the insatiable greed and exploitation associated with colonization, capitalism, and the resulting social strife and environmental destruction. So people in contemporary society talk about it in these terms. And so most famously, in 1978, uh, Professor Jack D. Forbes, who was an organizer in the Native American movement here in the U.S. and was the founder of one of the first Native American studies programs at UC Davis. So in 1978, he published Columbus and Other Cannibals, the Vitico Disease of Exploitation, Imperialism, and Terrorism. And so this is my, my twist. <laughs> that turns well, huh. out the true Wendigo is... Colonization. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot to unpack here. All right. It's a lot to be frightened of. <laughs> Take me on a journey. Yeah, I will. This is um a lot less real world looming threat. I didn't I thought I didn't expect it. I wasn't <laughs> this was not like me <laughs> sneak attacking you into like <laughs> No, no, no. It's just it's it's truly um a really interesting story from another culture but yeah it's 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 very it's a little bit heavy uh yeah i wanted i wanted this to be fun but i managed to come up with two things where i'm like this will be fun and one's about dead babies and the other is about like cultural erasure yes great (laughs) sorry i'm great at parties (laughs) (laughs) well it's okay because um this is gonna get a little wacky (laughs) okay Now that we've probably accidentally invoked every one of these spooky beings, uh, I am going to talk about some particular and, of course, slightly gross means of protection from otherworldly evil. So most of this is from Western Europe, uh, largely from England. And first up, we have witch bottles. I'm going to quote from uh, a resource that I used very heavily, which is this 1955 gem by Ralph Merrifield. (laughs) Uh, an article called Witch Bottles and Magical Jugs. And Ralph, so he wrote the book that I was reading and also this article. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. A common countermeasure against witchcraft, which has survived as a rustic superstition until recent times, is the preparation by the supposed victim of a witch bottle. The usual contents are a sample of the victim's urine together with a few nails, pins, or thorns. 
Sometimes other ingredients, also intimately connected with the person of the victim, may be included, such as clippings of his hair or fingernails. The bottle is securely corked or stoppered, and then is either concealed and left, or else heated until it explodes, with dire results to the witch who has cast the spell. End quote. So the witch bottles is used against a witch, not by a witch. Yeah, this is a an anti-witch bottle, but it's it's used. But it after seems very you, witchy. It seems it like is, a very witchy way to get rid of. It's like a real fighting fire with fire. Situation. Well, it's exactly that because you do it once you feel like you have been cursed or something belonging to you, like your cow or something has been cursed. It's not a preventative. It's a uh, retaliative measure. So. If the bottle is just left somewhere, which we'll talk about this in a minute, but it's often you find them sort of bricked into walls or in-house foundations. So if the bottle is left somewhere, the witch dies a slow, painful death. If the victim explodes the bottle, quote, the death of the witch and the subsequent relief of her victim are believed to take immediate effect, provided that the bottle actually bursts. If the cork merely flies out, the witch will escape. So witch bottles were typically left in places like churchyards in the graves of supposed victims or in house foundations or under house floors. So the earliest published reference to the bottling of nails with urine is from 1671 in a book titled Astrological Practice of Physic, physic with a K, of course. Uh -huh. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the reason for the success of the witch bottle was, the author reasoned, quote, because there is part of the vital spirit of the witch in it, for such is the subtlety of the devil that he will not suffer the witch to infuse any poisonous matter into the body of man or beast without some of the witch's blood mingled with it. So the idea is that the bottle represented the witch's bladder, and if the witch puts evil magic into you, there's some of the witch bound up in that, and so by inserting your urine and then also pins into the bottle, this would cause intense pain in the witch's groin, forcing him or her to remove their spell from the victim. So, makes total sense. Okay. Yeah. The earliest recorded use of a witch bottle is a quoted account in a different book from a guy who died in 1667. So, we can at least say that in the 17th century, witch bottles were a pretty common practice. Multiple specimens have been recovered from the Thames alone, all dating to the 17th century. Now, the witch bottle may have derived from a couple of earlier traditions. One, the generalized practice of applying heat to something bewitched. And um, two 15th century examples of this are cited in the famous anti-witch text, Malleus Maleficarum. So, cue sidebar. The Malleus Maleficarum, usually translated as the Hammer of Witches, is the best-known treatise on witchcraft. I'm sure there's a library shelf full of treatises on witchcraft, but this is the big one. It was written by the discredited Catholic clergyman Heinrich Kramer and first published <laughs> in the German city of Speyer in 1487. Probably Spire? I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, it endorses extermination of witches, great, and for this purpose develops a detailed legal and theological theory. So it makes sure to, to back up its claims with matey uppy science and, and legal legal claims. Claims on claims on claims. But it was a bestseller because there was nothing else to read. Second only to the Bible in terms of sales for almost 200 years. 
So if you're into this sort of thing, I'd actually really recommend the Wikipedia article on the Malleus Maleficarum as a starting point. Usually, Amber and I prefer that our research come from primary sources, but I took a quick look at the page, and it is in-depth and has lots and lots of citations. Oh, it definitely is. They did a great job if you wanna, Yeah, if you want to read further. So that's there on the internet waiting for you. Back to witch bottles. These may have also been inspired by the anthropomorphic graybeard jug. In the earlier 1500s, these remained in the Germanic parts of Europe with a kindly bearded face stamped on them. In later years, the face on this type of bottle developed a somewhat malevolent expression, for which it acquired the name Bellarmine Jug, named after Robert Bellarmine, a particularly fearsome Catholic inquisitor. Oh, what a funny joke. <laughs> Sorry. I was just expressing my appreciation for the, the German sense of humor. Yeah, it's very funny. You see, he's angry and the figure is also <laughs> angry. And so we have called the jug the same name. Yeah, it's a very good joke. To date, eight possible witch bottles have been identified in the United States. Archaeologist Marshall Becker was the first to identify an American witch bottle in an archaeological context. Known as the Essington witch bottle, the artifact was recovered during excavations on Great Tinicum Island in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. A mid-19th to early 20th century slave or tenant site in Dorchester County, Maryland, yielded a buried witch bottle that had a cork stopper bristling with straight pins. So, still with the pins. So that's witch bottles. Pins plus P mm -hmm. equals witch protection. Profit. Oh. Yup. Uh, now we are on to the theme of house protections, a.k.a. Badger home security systems. So... We're back to foundation deposits, and listeners to the Clut Holland episode will be more or less familiar with the idea. Uh, warning to cat lovers here, it's not good. Chicken lovers too, be warned. So animal sacrifices are well known archaeologically as a means of somehow protecting a house. The examples I'm talking about here are, again, overwhelmingly from England and Western Europe, but there are plenty of examples from all over the world of the same idea. So Merrifield, Ralph Merrifield of Magical Jugs fame, the Tweety-sounding author of The Archaeology of Ritual and Magic suggests that the practice has something to do with appeasing any spirits who might be disturbed by the digging of new foundations. Um, I've also seen references to protection from fire, as a lot of these deposits are in chimneys and under hearths. So here's a fun example. In the Tudor-era Lauderdale House, a mansion once owned by a minister of Charles II, so this is in the restoration period of England, circa 1650-ish, a bricked-up recess was found near one of the first-floor fireplaces containing the desiccated remains of four chickens. Two had been strangled, but two were evidently bricked in alive because at least one had laid an egg after its enclosure. Which is so sad. Um, and then also, thanks to Merrifield, here is a sentence I'd never thought I'd read. Very much commoner than dried chickens, as finds in buildings, are dried cats, the significance of which is uncertain. The practical purpose of frightening away vermin is often suggested, and a number have been set up as if by a taxidermist with the dried body of a rat, mouse, or even a bird. So is this something where, did the cat meet a similar fate as the the two latter chickens that you mentioned? Or I'm, I'm not sure. So in, in lots of cases, probably um, during the building of, of structures, maybe a street cat made its way into a nook or cranny and then it was accidentally bricked in but most of these are deliberately placed so the cat was either bricked in alive on purpose or it was killed and then um bricked in hmm. yeah apparently though the and and so now we get to swing away from 
from animal cruelty. <laughs> but um, apparently the most common charm for protecting a building in post-medieval times was a shoe, usually an old shoe, usually well-worn, occasionally with a number of other small personal possessions. And according to my best friend Ralph Merrifield, apparently a Miss J.M. Swan of the Northampton Museum compiled a list in 1969 of 129 of these finds dating from the 15th to the 20th century. And also, today, the Concealed Shoes Index at the Northampton Central Museum receives on average one find per month. I would very much like to go visit the Concealed Shoes Index. So can we put that in the budget? Yeah, yeah. www.patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Support us on Patreon. Let's go see them shoes. Um, Concealed and otherwise. Maybe old shoes were lucky because they're nice and worn in and that's the best way to get a shoe. Or maybe because it's sort of an intimate connection with, with your personal self. Self, so you're supposed to walk a mile in someone's shoes before you understand them. Um, I also found this this little gem of information in Cambridgeshire. Lightermen, which they're barge pilots, so the barges on the River Cam are called lighters for some reason unknown to me. Um, but anyway, this is the River Cam where Must Farm is. <laughs> These lightermen considered shoes taken from a dead man's feet especially lucky. Just in general. Just like taking yeah. their shoes? Yeah. So like See so a dead not guy only, you take his shoes? Yeah, so well, it's, I mean, it's, like, they're especially lucky because like bonus free shoes, or are I they guess, lucky yeah. because of some other property? Or may, maybe they're lucky because you're not the dead guy. That all sounds completely probable. Oh, so yeah. um finally, in terms of um we're back in sad animal land. Um if we want an inkling of just how far back this sort of practice goes. And again, because this is an account of it, it's probably happening way earlier than this. We can look to the treatise medic. Well, I'm going to use the hard C because it's Latin medicina de quadrupedibus attributed to Sextus Placitus who lived between the fourth and sixth centuries CE and whose work was translated into Anglo-Saxon in the 10th century. So, this work suggests the following uses, among others, for a dead badger. Um, I'm paraphrasing because this trans translation from the Latin is just the most stilted thing. That was during the period where everybody forgot Latin. Like writing in Latin um, was really bad, like really poor writing. Well, guess um, what? This was too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So of the badger, Placatus writes, take his liver... Divide it and bury it at the corners of your property boundaries and in the foundations of your stone wall and bury the heart underneath the gate to your property. And then you and your family will be protected. All pestilence will be driven away and, quote, there will be little mischief from fire. So I guess maybe still worry about fire a little bit. Little mischief. Well, um, joke's and, on you, Sextus, because badgers uh, transmit tuberculosis. But not fire. I guess if a badger was on fire, it could transmit fire. Anyway, just to see, I did a quick Google, and there are, in fact, security companies still named Badger. I was not able to confirm whether this is related to Placidus's work. <laughs> you can all... <laughs> They're like, yep, we will bury a quarter of a badger liver at every corner of your property. Yep. There you go, ma'am. 
You can contact them at badgersecuritysystems.com and tell them the dirt sent you. They won't know what you mean. That wasn't an ad. Nope, it wasn't. Just an invitation to check out their website and ask them about badger parts. Anyway, um, I wanted to wrap this up by saying that here at The Dirt, we are animal lovers, so we advise you to leave your cats and badgers alone. But hey, go ahead and bury a shoe or pee in a bottle this Halloween tide, because you never know. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks. Amber, we have some some shout-outs, or possibly some shouts out. <laughs> I did yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Haley, Alexis, Holly, and David for your support. Yeah. It means so much. So much. You guys, you guys like us. Yes. Oh. That's crazy. I know. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcast fix. And you can follow us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. Um, you can find us on Twitter over at, at Dirt Podcast. Yep. And if you want to see images and occasional silly captions, you can look us up on Instagram. We are at the dirt pod. You can find all of our social media together at the And you can send us an email with your, uh, witch prevention ideas at the dirt at gmail.com. Yeah. And if you like us, please rate and review us on Apple podcasts, please. And a thank you. Yes, indeed. And if you too would like a shout out and an air horn, you can support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber, or if you don't like commitment, we get it. You can become a single time donor. Either way, we would be extremely grateful. And the place to do that is patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And if you want to learn more about what we're hoping to do with those Patreon funds and one-time donations, you can check it out at thedirtpod.com slash goals. Thanks again for listening, guys. We love you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.